We're talking more about the confusion at Babel today, our fourth C in the seven C's of history. We saw last week, we can actually tell from the scriptures when that took place. When we combine that with some other dates, we can uh, come up with an approximate date, B.C., for the confusion at Babel. What date is that? Right, around 2240 B.C., or if your um, Answers in Genesis uses James Usher's chronology, which is specifically 2242, but around 2240 B.C., as we discussed last week. Babel was clearly an instance of man's pride and desire for self-sufficiency and self-exaltation. Man gloried in his ability to accomplish great tasks by working together in unity. But God humbled and judged man for his prideful rebellion. God divided man by confusing his language. There's more to Babel, though, that I'd like to investigate with you today. We know that the people groups separated from Babel, but which people groups formed? And where did they go? How are they related to the people groups we know today? Where do cavemen fit in the history of the earth? Did they appear after Babel? Did they appear before it? Did they appear at all? We hear about cavemen. And why is it that the people groups today look so different from one another? If we're really all one race, why do we look so different? And what accomplished this change? Let's investigate each of these questions this morning. The title is One Blood, One Race. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray that you would help me to explain well and give you glory during this time. Open the hearts and minds of the students to understand and to apply your word. In Jesus' name, amen. We start with the first question. Does the Bible give us any specific details about the first people groups? Well, actually, it does. Let's investigate Genesis chapter 10 together. Open your Bibles there, please. This whole chapter is often referred to as the table of the nations. That is the listing or the chart of the first nations. It gives us a lot of specific information. It's a long chapter, though, so we're going to examine it section by section. And as we do, please make use of the worksheet that you should have received. I think Eric has more in case you didn't get one. The Grandsons of Noah worksheet. It likely be helped by putting some of the information that we discuss here on your worksheet. We'll start by reading verses 1 to 5. And then we'll make some observations and move to interpretation. Verse 1, chapter 10. Now these are the records of the generations of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the sons of Noah. And sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth were Gomer and Magog and Madai, and Javan and Tubal and Meshech and Tiras. The sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz and Riphath and Togamah. The sons of Javan were Elisha and Tarshish, Kittim and Dodanim. From these, the coastlands of the nations were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. Okay, we'll stop there. You'll notice this passage starts by identifying Noah's three sons. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The focus shifts, though, to a certain son and his descendants in verse 2. Which son? Japheth. Japheth. This is all about Japheth right here. Now note Japheth and his sons on the right side of your worksheet. He has a bunch of sons. So you can fill in Japheth in that top box there when it splits into three. And then his sons underneath that. We have Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, 
and Tyrus. Those are his seven sons. We also get a listing of grandsons, but only for two of Japheth's sons. Which sons do we get to hear about the grandsons? Not Elisha, but Javan is definitely one of them. Who's the other one? Right above that says the sons of Gomer. Right, so we hear about Gomer and Javan, but not all of them. We only get the grandsons for some of the sons. The grandsons of Gomer, and there's no place for this in your worksheet, but you can note it if you would like. Just be aware of it. The grandsons of Gomer, or the sons of Gomer, the grandsons of Japheth would be Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Togarma. And their grandsons through Javan, were Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodani. Now, do you recognize any of these names? These ones listed in verses 2 to 5. Because the Hebrews would have recognized many, if not all of these names. And we actually see some of them later in the scripture. Do any of the names stick out to you? You may recognize Tarshish. Where does Tarshish appear again later in the scriptures? Saul of Tarsus, so not, not Tarshish, but it's close. Jonah, right. Remember, the place that Jonah wanted to go to to get away from God's calling for him was Tarshish. And we also see that name frequently discussed in relation to merchant shipping later on in the Old Testament. What other names? Magog. Where does Magog appear again? Revelation, right? When it talks about the final rebellion. I don't know if it's the final or the... the next to final rebellion, it says the people come from Magog, Gog and Magog, to assemble against the Lord and against his city. So we see them um, later on in the Old Testament. Some names that you might not recognize from other scriptures, but actually are present there, they need a little bit more explanation. The term Madai, you actually have seen it seen it later in the scriptures, because Madai is actually just the Hebrew name for Medes. So when you see Medes referred to later in the Old Testament, it's actually this name, Madai. So when the Medes have an empire, remember the Medes and Persians have an empire, and Darius is the one who leads that, he's, he's a Madai. He's from the line of Madai. And then Javan, actually, you also see later in the scriptures, because Javan, or Yavan, is the Hebrew name for the Ionian people. Or the Greeks. So when Daniel, when it refers to the king of the Greeks, who's going to come, it's literally the king of Yavan. So we do actually see some of these names repeated later in the Old Testament. We also get a location mentioned in this section. To where did these descendants, or at least part of these descendants, go? The coastlands, right? It says the coastlands of the nations. And the phrase in verse 5 can also be translated the coastlands of the Gentiles. Now, the coast with which the Israelites would be most interacting with would be which co- or the coast of which sea? Mediterranean, right? That's the, the great sea that they refer to. The Mediterranean Sea and likely the Mediterranean coast. Now, according to the last part of verse 5, how were the people divided? According to? According to language and? Yeah, into groups, but according to family. It says in verse 5, 
everyone according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. Okay, let's ask a few interpretive questions now. Does verse 5, because it says they were divided according to language, does it indicate that the people already had different languages before the events of chapter 11? Could that be true? I hear, uh, I didn't hear anything clearly. Well, we might say it could have, could or could have been, except for one detail given to us in the beginning of Genesis 11, which says that all the people had what kind of language? They had one language, right? One language and one set of words, one language and one vocabulary. So it can't be that they simply had languages, separate languages before Babel. So how are we to understand the description about different languages here? Well, Moses has not yet explained their origin. He says, yes, they did divide by languages, but I haven't told you how that's happened yet. I will, in just a moment. It comes in the next chapter with Babel. Now, should we see all of Japheth's descendants inhabiting the coastlands, or just the last group mentioned, the sons of Javan, or the sons of Yavan? And before we answer that, listen to a prophecy that comes from Isaiah about distant peoples coming to know God through scattered Jews. This is Isaiah 66, 19. It says, I will set a sign among them and will send survivors from them, that's the Jews, to the nations, Tarshish, Put, Lud, Meshach, Tubal, and Javan, to the distant coastlands that have neither heard my fame nor seen my glory, and they will declare my glory among the nations. Now, you don't have that text right in front of you, but you hear some of the names, the same names again as we just read and not simply from the sons of Javan. So, should we understand the inhabitants of the coastlands to be Japheth's descendants generally, or just Javan's descendants? Perhaps it would be easier to answer that question if you had the text in front of you. But we have people referred to as dwelling in the coastlands who are not Javan's sons. They were Japheth's sons generally. So we can say, all of Japheth's descendants are meant by these are the people who dwelled according to the coastlands. Japheth's descendants dwelled in the coastlands. So then, in which general direction must Japheth and his descendants have spread out after Babel? Toward Europe. North and west would be the general direction. So you can see that green portion there on the map that I have up there, that's modern-day Iraq. But in the middle of it is Babylon. So imagine Japheth's descendants are moving up and a little bit also northwest, generally. Descendants of Japheth move toward Europe and Asia. Now let's look at the next section, Genesis 10, 6-20. Here we're going to encounter the descendants of Ham. Look at verse 6 with me. The sons of Ham were Cush and Mizraim and Put and Canaan. The sons of Cush were Sheba and Havilah and Sabta and Rama and Sabteka, and the sons of Rama were Sheba and Dedan. Now Cush became the father of Nimrod. He became a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Erech and Akkad and Kalna and the land of Shinar. From that land he went forth into Assyria 
and built Nineveh and Rehoboth-ir and Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala, that is, the great city. Mizraim became the father of Ludim and Anamim and Lahabim and Naphtahim and Pathrasim and Kaslahim, from which came the Philistines and Kaphtarim. Canaan became the father of Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusite, and the Amorite, and the Girgashite, and the Hivite, and the Archite, and the Sinite, and the Arvidite, and the Zemurite, and the Hamathite, and afterward the families of the Canaanite were spread abroad. The territory of the Canaanite extended from Sidon as you go toward Gerar, as far as Gaza, as you go toward Sodom and Gomorrah, and Adma and Zeboim, as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham according to their families, according to their languages, by their lands, by their nations. Okay, we'll stop there. Let's make some more observations. The four sons of Ham are given to us in verse 6. We've got Cush, Mitzraim, Putz, and Canaan. So we can note these on our worksheet as well. They would go in that middle section. So that top box there, that's Ham, and those four blanks underneath it, those would be his four sons. Cush, Mitzraim, Putz, and Canaan. Now again... We get grandsons, or some of Ham's sons, and even some great-grandsons. From Cush, we have his sons Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Rama, Sabteka, and one other son. Which son? This one's a famous one. Nimrod. Nimrod. And of Nimrod, we're told a couple things. What do we learn about Nimrod? He was a mighty hunter, and he has a Hebrew idiom named after him, or that came into the Hebrew language because of him. And what's the other thing? He established something. Yeah, he had a kingdom. And his kingdom included some notable cities like Babel and Nineveh. All right, so we want to note that. Also, Cush's son Rama also had descendants Sheba and Dedan. So here we're learning about some great-grandsons of Ham. Sheba and Dedan would have been great-grandsons. From Mizraim, Ham's son, we get a number of other uh, grandsons. Ludim, Anamim, Lahabim, Naphtahim, Pathrasim, Kaphtarim, and Kaslahim. So seven grandsons for Ham through Mizraim. Now, there's an author's, uh, the author makes a little aside. We see that the Philistines are not Canaanites. They are descendants through which man? Yeah, through, through Mizraim, and specifically his son, Kaslahim. Right, we want to note that as well. Then we get, as we move through the text, we get a lot about Ham's son, Canaan. And Canaan's descendants. What's strange about the sons described as coming through Canaan? At least the description. So that's, uh, we get that right in verses 15 and following. Strange about the description of his sons. Yeah, Khalif. Exactly. Very good, Khalif. It gives us the first two sons just with a name, and then it switches over to like a tribal name, a groups of people, where it says Sidon and Heth, and then Jebusite and Amorite and Girgashite and so forth. Thirteen lines of descent come through Canaan, and a lot of them are named by their tribes. Now, in this section on him, we again get some location information. 
but, but specifically, not for the whole group, specifically for the territory of Canaan and his descendants. Their territory extended between Sidon in the north, so if you know about Tyre and Sidon, they would be modern-day Lebanon, north of Israel, to Gaza in the south. And if you've paid attention to the news in the last couple of years, you've probably heard about Gaza. Where is Gaza? Southwest Israel, between Egypt and modern Israel today. Gaza would be that southwest Israel next to the coast. So this is where their territory extended from. The Canaanites were up um, from Sidon in the north to Gaza in the south. Now, there are even more names in this section that are probably familiar to you. Which names stick out? Right, Jebusites and Amorites. Where do we hear those names, Bill? That's right. The Canaanites and, and some of the descendants of, or Canaan and his descendants, we see their names a lot in the Old Testament, specifically in the beginning part of the Old Testament, because the Israelites are instructed to destroy these peoples, to drive them out of the land. Israel is instructed to seize their land. So they're going to be interacting with the Canaanites a lot. We also, oh, what are some other names that you see there that you recognize? Yes. Right, Sodom and Gomorrah. That's the location information there. What else? You surely recognize the names Babel, Shinar, and Nineveh from what we talked about last week. Sidon, uh, also mentioned. That's another name that appears later in the, the Old Testament. Uh, Sidon and Tyre were famous trading cities to the north of Israel, famous for their merchants and their shipping. Other names, though, you don't know that you recognize, but these names, again, will appear later in, in the Old Testament, like Mitzrayim. Bill actually said it, but when you, say Mitzray, when you see Mitzrayim, it's actually the Hebrew name for Egypt. <laughs> Anytime you see Egypt in the Old Testament, it's this name, Mitzrayim. Or Cush. You recognize that probably later in the Old Testament. This is the Hebrew name for Ethiopia. So when you see Ethiopia in your Old Testament translation, it's just this name. Kush. So we see some of those things again. And this section ends like the first. The people were divided by language and family into their different lands. Okay, uh, hold, hold your question. Um, we've got a lot to talk about today, but bring it up again at the end. Let's interpret it a little bit. In the previous section, we got a lot of description of the descendants of Japheth and some of Japheth's great-grandsons, or some of Japheth's grandsons. But this section on Ham is not only longer than the previous section with Japheth, but includes extensive detail about certain descendants of Ham, most notably the Canaanites. Why do you think this is? Yeah, Steve. I didn't Canaan. That's right. So why would Moses be spending time talking about Canaan? Yeah, they're particularly relevant for the people of Israel to know about, right? Because they're the exact people that they're going to be going up against, right? A lot of the, as we'll see, and perhaps you already see, a lot of the sons and grandsons that we get more information about, those are Israel's most immediate neighbors. They're the ones that they're going to be interacting with the most. And some of the more distant peoples, well, we don't get as much information about them. Where did the descendants of Ham generally move after the Tower of Babel? 
If you know, if we pay attention to where the Canaanites settled, where Ethiopia is, where Egypt is, where did the Can- or what did the, where did the descendants of Ham move generally? West and south, right? Towards the coast, the Mediterranean coast, and also into Africa. The descendants of Ham moved toward the Mediterranean coast and into Africa. All right, nice. One more section here. Let's read about Shem and his descendants. This is verses 21 to 32. Starting in 21. Also to Shem, the father of all the children of Eber, and the older brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem were Elam and Asher and Arpachshad and Lud and Aram. The sons of Aram were Uz and Hol and Gether and Mash. Arpachshad became the father of Shelah, and Shelah became the father of Eber. Two sons were born to Eber. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan became the father of Almadad and Shelah and Hazamarveth and Jerah, and Hadoram and Uzal and Dikla and Obal, and Abameel, and Sheba, and Ophir, and Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. Now their settlement extended from Mesha as you go towards Safar, the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem, according to their families, according to their languages, by their lands, according to their nations. These are the families of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, by their nations. And out of these, the nations were separated on the earth after the flood. Okay. Let's observe once again. Shem had five sons. We can fill these in on our worksheet. We have Elam, Asher, spelled differently than the other Asher in the Old Testament, Arpachshad, Lud, and Aram. So we put these on the left side of the worksheet. Shem's sons, five sons. Once again, Moses is selective, though, about the grandsons. We only hear about Aram's and Arpachshad's later descendants. From Aram are Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash. So four grandsons from Shem, for Shem. From Arpachshad, there's only one son mentioned. But Genesis 11.13, so next chapter, says Arpachshad had other sons and daughters. But Moses is only going to focus on one son and his descent from Arpachshad. The genealogy appears particularly interested in Eber's descendants. And remember, Eber is where we get the name Hebrew. It skips listing out Arpachshad's full descendants, or Shelah's full descendants, and focuses on Eber. Eber is what relation to Shem? Great-grandson. Great-grandson. And Eber has two sons, Peleg and Joktan. Though it's not explained here, we see in chapter 11 that Abram's descent is found through Peleg. For some reason, though, we get a lot of information about Joktan's descendants. Almadad, Shelef, Hazamarveth, Jera, Hadoram, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Abameel, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. Thirteen sons come through Joktan, or thirteen great-great-grandsons for Shem. We're also told where Joktan and his descendants settled. From Misha, as you go towards Safar, or that's, we get the description from Misha as you go towards Safar, indicating the southern section of the Arabian Peninsula. So Joktan would go to the southern section of the Arabian Peninsula. Once again, what names from this list of names from verses 21 to 32 do you recognize? Or do you recognize any? Oh, Peleg, we definitely talked about him, especially because um, the descriptor, in his days the earth was divided. Peleg. Who else? Sheba. 
Now there, there's a, a descendant from Sheba through Shem's line and also through Ham's line. Now we know Sheba from what other part of the Old Testament? Someone from Sheba? The Queen of Sheba, right? Visits Solomon. So it could be either one of those Shebas. You might recognize Ophir. Where's, uh, what do we hear about Ophir later on in the Old Testament? That's right. Solomon interacts with Ophir. There's gold from Ophir that, that um, comes to Israel. Some kind of trading port. Ophir appears to be some kind of trading port. Some other names that you might not know that you know, but Asher. This is the Hebrew name for Assyria. It's used that way elsewhere in the Old Testament. And Assyria would be the empire that conquers northern Israel after the kingdom split. So Asher equals Assyria. Then we also have Aram. From this name, we get the Arameans and Aramaic. It's from Aram. And this is also the name for Syria elsewhere in the Old Testament. So think of Damascus, Syria. That would be Aram. Though sometimes, I think the NASB doesn't translate it as Syria. It just leaves it as Aram. But Aram equals Syria. And of course, there's Eber, the Hebrews. So again, some names here that would have been very familiar to the people of Israel and will be familiar to them later on in the Old Testament. Now, verse 32 says the families of Noah resulted in the separated nations of the earth, and this happened when, according to verse 32? After the flood. Okay, now let's interpret some more. How should we understand that phrase, after the flood? Did the families immediately divide after they left the ark? No, they didn't, and we know that. Why? Because of chapter 11. He hasn't told us how they've divided yet, but they will divide because of the Tower of Babel. So, just like we saw earlier, when it comes to the languages, we have to understand verse 32's statement in light of chapter 11. The first part of chapter 11 backs up the chronology and explains how the division across the earth, not long after the flood, took place. Now, where did the descendants of Shem generally move after the confusion of Babel? If we have some of his descendants in Syria, Assyria, we have some also going south to the southern part of the Arabian Peninsula. Where did Shem's descendants generally move? Say that again. They definitely went south, and maybe some of the descendants also went east. They're, they're staying around Babel. They're inhabiting a lot of the Middle East, and also moving south in the Middle East. So the descendants of Shem, they spread out around Babel, and they also move into the south and Middle East. So to summarize, according to the information in this passage, we can see the descendants of Japheth generally move north and west toward Europe and Asia. Well, actually, it would be for you, north and west. The descendants of Ham generally moved west and south toward the coast of the Middle East and Africa, and the descendants of Shem generally moved south or spread out around Babel. But easier to see this all on a map, right? Well, let's look at a map. If you have a steady Bible, or maybe just a regular Bible, you probably have a map like this in the back of your Bible, a map of the table of the nations. So you can see different colors on this map. I think I've shown it before in a previous class. But each color indicates the descendants of a certain son. So the orange would be the descendants of Ham, the green would be the descendants of Japheth, and the purple would be the descendants of Shem. So you can see a little bit what we were talking about, the general directions of the three sons and their descendants. Not every descendant, as you can see from the map, went the same direction as the other sons, or as the other descendants from that son. 
For example, some of Japheth's descendants, they also went east. So we see Madai is a little bit northeast from Babel, though Japheth generally moved north and west. Also, Ham and Shem's descendants also went northwest. We have, um, though the Hittites are not mentioned, it's likely that the Hittites were in the southern part of Turkey, so wasn't the Ham's descendants were not just moving west and south. Some of them also went a little bit north. And one of Shem's descendants, Lud, would be part of the kingdom of Lydia. They also went northwest. So we see general directions, but not every descendant went the same way as the other ones. Now, while many of the names from this chapter, in chapter 10, they can be put together with other sections of the Bible and some historical information so we can get a good idea of where these people groups were precisely. But we can't do this for all the names. If you look at the map in your Bible for the Table of Nations, it might look a little different from this, especially with the, the peoples that are a little bit farther away from Israel. You'll notice names like Gomer and Magog and Tarshish put in very different places. We don't get as much information about those names, so it's a little harder to be precise. But with the closer, with the neighbors of Israel, we have a very good idea of where they went. Just another note here. You see Joktan? It's not described in the text, but that's describing the Arabian people. That's where we get Arabia from Joktan. Elam, that would become Persia. And we certainly see Persia mentioned later in the Bible. Uh, I think Okitim, Cyprus, Ashkenaz, probably the Scythians over there in um, the northeastern part of the Middle East. Okay. So, couldn't be precise with all the names, but this, you can see, would have given the people of Israel an excellent context for understanding the nations around them. They would have known where these nations were and how they originated. Now, to be sure, these people groups did not remain static in these locations. Some migrated. Some were exterminated. Some were dispersed or forcibly taken into new lands. So this didn't stay this way. Israel's own experience in the scriptures features those kinds of experiences. Israel is taken away from its land. Israel is scattered. However, from this chapter, especially because of how it ends, we can know from the scriptures how all of the nations of the earth began after Babel. Even the peoples who came to live what would seem to be the farthest reaches from Babel, Japan, Australia, North and South America, they were descendants from these first people groups. All right, so we've talked about what were the first people groups and where they went. Let's talk a little bit about cavemen. Did cavemen exist? Well, think about this. As the people are moving out from Babel into new lands, lands in which there were no other people, what challenges might they have faced? Or what needs did they have? Exactly. They needed food. They needed water. They needed shelter. And they needed defense. Defense from wild animals and defense from other hostile migrating tribes. And to handle these challenges, people needed supplies. Where would they have gotten their supplies? They either had to take it with them from Babel, whatever they could take, or they had to make it themselves from the land. There were no markets to buy food as they move into these new lands. There are no inns to stay at. It's whatever they could carry, whatever their animals could carry, if they had any animals, and whatever they could easily make from the land. Moreover, I think we mentioned something about this already, but I'll say it again. Each family likely did not have the skills 
that were once part of the larger community at Babel. For example, we know that some families before the flood were working with metals. Genesis 4.22, we get one of the descendants of Cain as a metal worker. And so this knowledge was probably part of the community at Babel. Families skilled at metalworking could have provided that skill to the entire city. However, at Babel, the families were divided. The people's skills then also were split. Knowledge and skill in metalworking was no longer a part of each of these new communities. Each family group simply had to make do with what metal tools they already had, or they had to make new tools out of something different than metal. Now consider... Consider how we would fare. Consider how we would fare if we were suddenly forced to go into the wild. We're highly sophisticated Americans in the 21st century, but throw us into the wild with only what we can carry, and suddenly we will look extremely primitive and unintelligent. Right? We might even look pathetic. There are no microwaves in the wilderness. There are no water coolers. There are no hardware stores or supermarkets. All the things that we're used to. It's back to basics. We've got to forage, we've got to hunt, we've got to make everything ourselves. For instance, if we need to break something open, what will we probably use? A rock, right? Rocks are hard, I can just slam this rock and that'll break it open. We'll also need shelter. But I don't know about you, I'm not that great at building shelters when I don't have the tools and I don't have the knowledge of how to build a shelter. So what kind of shelter would be ideal if you or I were to happen upon it in the wild? A cave! A cave would be great. It's sturdy, a good respite from sun and rain, and mildly defensible. True, it's not transportable. But it would make a good home base while you and I make our tents or make our houses. Now, if you or I lived in a cave and used stone tools because of our suddenly desperate situation, does it make us stupid or barbaric? No. No, of course not. Put us back in civilization and we'll show ourselves to be very culturally and technologically savvy. But in the wilderness, we look culturally and intellectually deficient. So what am I getting at here? The stereotypes of the people who lived in the so-called Stone Age. People who used stone tools and lived in caves. Scientists and historians talk about these Stone Age peoples as being without culture and relatively dumb. They couldn't even make metal tools. They lived in caves. They paint these really basic paintings of hunting. What a bunch of Neanderthals. Well, really, when we understand the true history of the earth recorded in the Bible, we see a much more sensible explanation. These so-called Stone Age peoples were not unintelligent or uncultured at all. They were simply spreading out after the confusion of Babel and making use of what was available. As the numbers within these people groups grew, as they found suitable locations to permanently settle, And as they perfected the skills that they needed to relearn or that they gleaned from interaction with other people groups, these people groups then reestablished cities, trade, and cultural pursuits. So yes, we do see stone tools, people who lived in caves. We see that evidence today. But these cavemen, they were real, but they were not dumb. They were not the ignorant brutes that we sometimes think of. They were likely the people who were just spreading out from Babel and didn't have all the skills that they shared together in that community. So we've seen how the first people group started. We've seen how the process of spreading out caused the people groups to temporarily adopt a more primitive lifestyle. But let's come to our third question. How is it that the people groups began to look so different from one another? Why do we look so different today? 
Well, as you know, man has long used differences in appearance as a channel for his hatred and distrust of his fellow man. It's not that there's anything intrinsically wrong or right with a certain eye shape, nose shape, or skin color, but these physical features make tangible, more abstract issues. Differences in culture, differences in religion or ethnicity, as well as the hurts and oppressions suffered from the hands of those people of other cultures. Mere appearance then becomes an excuse for hatred and mistreatment. We as men choose to hate those who are different from us, and we find occasion in just how they look. There was a time, many of you know, there was a time when man sought to scientifically erect a hierarchy of races. And this was based off of evolutionary theory. Certain ethnicities were said to be more superior or more highly evolved than other ethnicities. And superiority was evident in their physical features. White Europeans, of course, were at the top of this hierarchy, and Africans were at the bottom. Such thinking was prevalent even at the beginning of the 20th century, a supposedly advanced era not too long from our own, but the most obvious and heinous example in Hitler's Germany, which saw blonde-haired, blue-eyed Germans to be the master race, while Jews and Slavs were so inferior on the hierarchy of races, as to be worthy of extermination. Perhaps we think we're all past that now. Our world has learned its lesson, but it hasn't. You know, our news is full of racial conflict. Black versus white, native versus immigrant, European versus Middle Eastern, Chinese versus Japanese, etc. Much of this is based off of what appear to be innate differences between the races. There's something in that ethnicity or race that's evil or wrong. And we see this even in appearance, supposedly. But the Bible's clear. We're all one race. We're all one race. Genesis 3.20 says, Eve was the mother of all living. Anyone who's living, any human who's living, came through Eve. Acts 17.26, our memory verse, says that from one, God made every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. Word for nation, ethnos. Every ethnicity, every people group came from one blood, one man. That is Adam and Eve. Even though we may look a little different from one another, we're all the same race. There is no intrinsic superiority or inferiority between the people groups. In fact, what appear to be dramatic differences in appearance or physical features can be explained by two very simple processes that have been working since Babel. And that is genetic variation and natural selection. Genetic variation and natural selection. Now, when I say natural selection, some of you may be thinking, whoa, are you talking about evolution? Often, the terms natural selection and evolution are used interchangeably by evolutionists. But they actually don't describe the same thing. So I want to take some time to explain that. Natural selection, according to Answers in Genesis, oh, by the way, this is also called, sometimes called adaptation, microevolution, or even survival of the fittest, can be defined in this way. This is from an article from Answers in Genesis. Natural selection is the process by which individuals possessing a set of traits that confer a survival advantage in a given environment tend to leave more offspring on average that survive to reproduce in the next generation. Okay, that may sound a little bit technical. Let me clear it up with a simple example. Let's take dogs. Let's say you have two dogs. Male and female, one has long hair, and one has short hair. 
they run away from their owners into the wilds of Alaska during one summer, and they start having puppies. First generation of puppies ends up containing a mixture of long-haired dogs and short-haired dogs. However, winters in Alaska are very cold, and the short-haired dogs can't stay warm enough. What happens to them? They die. They all die. All the short-haired dogs can't survive the cold, and they die. So who's left to populate for the next puppy generation? Only the long-haired dogs. But some of those long-haired dogs may contain genetic information for short-haired dogs. And so when these new dogs have puppies the next year, the puppies are mostly long-haired, but there are also a few short-haired dogs born. However, what's going to happen to these short-haired puppies in the next winter if the environment stays consistent? They are all going to die again. So every time the winter comes around, any short-haired dogs die. After a few generations, the dog couples in the wilds of Alaska no longer produce any short-haired dogs. Why is that? They died out. And another, can we say more of, well, why can't the long-haired dogs produce the short-haired dogs? Yeah, Roy. Exactly. We've lost genetic information. The dogs that survived, or I'll say it this way, all of the creatures who had the genetic, infor- short, the genetic information for short-haired dogs either died out or did not pass it on. Because even the long-haired dogs, they may contain information for short hair, but um, they only trans- transfer either long hair or short hair to their descendants. Over time, all that genetic information was lost. All the genetic information for short-haired dogs was lost. So this is what I mean by natural selection. Natural selection is an observable process. We see it happening today. Genetic information is lost when variants of a certain gene, or the variants of a certain kind of gene, are less successful in a given environment. They are selected against. The genetic information is lost. It dies out. Uh, Hold on to your question until the end. Now, both creationists and evolutionists agree that natural selection has played a role in the development of creature populations. It's why we see speciation today, why we see the development of certain species. It's also why the woolly mammoths died out in North America and Russia, and while others of the elephant kind in Africa and Asia survived and thrived. But what's the big difference then? Well, evolutionists see natural selection along with mutation and other factors They say that over time, this can cause one kind of creature to transform into another kind of creature. They say that natural selection and mutation can, say, turn a fish's descendants. One day, they can become a dog. But this can't happen. Such macroevolution is not observed today. It's not genetically possible. Natural selection removes genetic information from the gene pool. That is the total collection of genes in a certain area. It does not provide new information. There's no way fish can gain the information for dogs. So evolutionists suppose that natural selection can fuel the larger process of evolution, but it cannot. What does this have to do with humans? One second, I'll get to that. But let me explain the other process first. This one is actually more important for explaining why humans look so different today. That's simply how genes can be lost in connection with genetic variation. Let's use dogs again as an example. And we'll be a little bit more detailed on how we talk about genetics here. But it's still simplified. Suppose you have two dogs with medium-length hair. So each dog has one allele. Allele is just the term for a type of gene. 
one allele for long hair and one allele for short hair. You see that at the top there, LS. They each inherit one allele from each of their dog parents, and they got one allele for long hair and one allele for short hair, which manifests itself in medium-length hair. Now let's say that these two dogs have puppies. And because of the way that the genes can combine, they're going to pass on one allele or the other to each of their offspring. So some puppies are SS, short hair, some are LS, medium hair, and some are LL, long hair. Now suppose that two of the long-haired dogs move away from the rest of the dog population. What kind of puppies will they produce? Only long-haired dogs. Now why is that? Well, it's similar to what we were just talking about. They've lost certain pieces of genetic information. They no longer have the information for short hair, and if they separate from the rest of the dog population, there's no way for that information to get reinserted back into the dog population. Therefore, these dogs will only produce long-haired dogs, the next set of dogs will only produce long-haired dogs, and the next set of dogs will only produce long-haired dogs, and so forth. That physical trait will become set in that region, in the dog population. That's simply because a genetic variation was taken away, or a certain genetic variation was separated from the rest of the group. Now let's bring this back to humans. The physical differences between the people groups today can be accounted for with just these two processes, simple genetic variation and perhaps a small amount of natural selection. While people in the original Babel population likely enjoyed a diverse gene pool, the families suddenly separated from each other, which means that they isolated and greatly reduced the gene pools present in the separated new communities. Humans our creatures are, are similar to what we described about dogs in one sense, that we can only reproduce with the genetic information that we already have. Therefore, like the long-haired dogs that suddenly separated from the greater dog population, each group of humans became physically distinct. Take skin color, for example. First of all, let's understand a little bit about skin color. The only thing that separates my skin color from that of Khalif's is the, present, is the presence of a certain chemical in our skins. What chemical? Melanin, or specifically eumelanin. All of us have eumelanin in different amounts. Our bodies make it. And none of us are truly black or white. We're all a spectrum, a brown. If you have a lot of eumelanin in your skin, you will be very dark brown, which we call black. But if you have a little eumelanin in your skin, you'll be very light brown, which we call white. Now, you can increase the amount of eumelanin in your skin by doing what? Go out and expose yourself to the sun. This is what tanning is, right? You cause your body to produce more eumelanin by exposing it to the sun. However, there's a limit to how much you can tan, and there's a limit to your tanning ability, because you have natural levels of eumelanin, and you have natural levels of eumelanin-producing ability. And that is based on genetics. It's inherited. Therefore, if two people with dark skin marry, what skin color will their children tend to have? Dark. If two people with light skin marry, what skin color will their children tend to have? Light. What if someone with dark skin marries someone with light skin? What skin color will their children tend to have? What? Right, it's going to be in between, right? I'll probably get someone who is, has brown skin. Not dark, not light, but something more in the middle. Okay, with this understanding, how 
with what we saw happen at Babel, how would that have resulted in whole regions of people with distinct skin colors? Uh, yeah, Roy. Exactly. Exactly. The people are going to stay within their communities, and if they only already, if they start with uh, couples that are only dark skinned or only light skinned or only brown skinned, then that's all they're going to produce in the next generations. Because the family separated, they took with them the limited genetic information they had. Light skinned couples, for example, produced only light skinned babies. And when their babies grew up, the only people in their communities to marry were also light skinned. Therefore, the next generation was also light skinned, and the next generation, and the next generation. In this way, whole regions can come to possess the same or very similar skin tones, and in a relatively short amount of time. It's because of the genetic variation that God has designed in humans combined with people separating from one another. The same process must have happened with other physical characteristics. The reason that you and I can point to certain physical features like eye shape or eye color or facial structure and say, oh, he's German, or oh, she's Japanese, it's because certain genetic variations of eye shape, eye color, and facial structure became isolated in those various people groups as they separated from... Now, it's also possible... And let me just say it again. Genetic variation, combined with the concept of separating, I think accounts for, can completely account for, the very... However, it's also possible that emerging physical characteristics in each community helped certain people survive longer and have more children than others in their community. Others in their community who didn't have those characteristics. Therefore, certain physical traits may have become naturally, naturally selected over time. Let me explain how this would work with skin color. It's currently thought that dark skin is beneficial for environments with lots of sunlight, like near the equator, since more eumelanin in the skin means the body tends to experience less negative effects from UV rays. Therefore, light-skinned descendants in Africa and other places near the equator, they may have had more trouble with skin cancer and other sun-related issues. Therefore, they survived less long and they had fewer children. And over time, light skin became less prominent in the populations. Moreover, it's also thought that light skin, though, is beneficial for environments with less sunlight, since light skin individuals can produce more vitamin D with less sun exposure. Therefore, dark skin descendants in northern Europe or Asia may have suffered more from vitamin D deficiency, which leads to rickets, problems in birth, and other issues. Dark-skinned settlers then may have survived less long and had fewer children in those areas because of that difference. Now, I speak tentatively about natural selection in this way, though, because while this may explain a little bit uh, an influence on the populations, there may have been ways around these issues. If light-skinned inhabitants, inhabitants were going to suffer more from the sun, they could simply have covered themselves more, just warm more clothes. And so maybe sunny environments wouldn't have been such a problem for them. Or dark-skinned inhabitants in northern climes, while they might not have gotten much vitamin D from the sun, they could get it from things that were, they, they were eating, like some of, the, some of the game, which eats uh, lichen and other things that produce a lot of vitamin D. So there may have been ways around these issues. Natural selection may have played a very limited role, if any, but it could have played a role. So I present these two things to you 
to show you that simple processes, processes that we observe today, can account for what look like drastic differences between the people groups. Genetically, the differences between different groups of people are very slight, and they're the results of families separating from one another and then spreading out across the earth. Now, evolutionary biologists will claim there's not enough time. There's not enough time for today's diversity to result from just four couples starting about 4,000 years ago. But their objection is actually self-refuting because the reason they say there's not enough time is because they make calculations based on evolutionary assumptions. So things like how many, how many years was it before, or how many years were there between the generations? How many mutations occurred within a certain amount of time? How long did it take for the people to separate from another in each area? All of those questions are answered according to their evolutionary assumptions. In other words, to prove their evolutionary view true, they create a timeline that must assume evolution is true in order, in order for that timeline to work. But this is circular reasoning. You cannot assume your conclusion as your premise and then make an argument that has any validity. No, indeed, there is actually quite enough time to produce today's diversity from Babel. It doesn't take long for, if the people groups separate, it doesn't take long for certain physical traits to become set in the populations in different, in different regions. Like language and culture, though, these physical characteristics continue to morph as people continue to mix with and separate from each other. Certain features became, or other factors may have played a role, certain features became valued or devalued by society, certain traits made one more successful in society or less successful in society, etc., but we see the large processes that were at play here. So indeed, we are all one race. And the wonderful duty for us, as believers, through the gospel, is to love and win people from every tribe, tongue, and nation for Christ. I'll say more about that in just a second, but I saw some questions. Let me answer those. Questions? Yes, yeah, Steve. It's part of that explanation. Um, the question of how did people get to some of the islands uh, from, yeah, how did people get to some of the islands, how did people get to North America, that's going to involve a little bit of a discussion of the Ice Age because we see that the world is a little bit different after the flood than, than it is now. But the process of spreading out and of people separating from one another, that is also relevant there. So you have people who, I don't know, they're on the mainland, and they say, we want to go establish some, some, a community somewhere else. There's this island over here. Let's go live there. And then they're really physically separated from a lot of the peoples. So, yeah. Other questions? All right, well, one uh, last topic I want to talk about with you, and I said that our duty as believers, as Christians, is to share the gospel with every people group and to win them to Christ. We really need to ask ourselves, because prejudice is very much a, a part of fallen man, do we love all the people groups like Christ does? Do we love all the people groups like Christ does? Do we love all people like Christ does? Or do we have certain criteria in our mind that, that merits whether we love somebody or not? Whether they appear a certain way, or whether they're from a certain group, you know that no person has greater or less value based on their people group. All people are made in the image of God. 
It's what gives them value. It's not anything within themselves. It's that God, God's image is on that person. They are made in God's image. That's what gives them value. And God is no respecter of persons according to skin color or eye shape or any other physical feature. Rather, you know, he says to Samuel, uh, very poignantly, in Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, when Samuel is about to look for the next king of Israel after Saul, God says to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as a man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God does not respect any physical trait. And not only this, because we're all one race, we all suffer under the same desperate need as our first parents did. And that is the need for salvation, the need for rescue from sin and death. In addressing this need, our Lord Christ was delighted to totally pierce through racial prejudices and boundaries. We not only see this in the New, Test- New Testament's universal gospel scope, where it says all tribes, every tongue, every nation. But we see it in Jesus' own ministry. Besides the Jews, Jesus also ministered to people from two other groups. Groups that were hated by the Jews. Which two groups? Samaritans? What's the other one? Uh, I don't know if Philistines particularly, but Gentiles. Um, Galileans, are, as a, I guess, a, a group within the Jewish group. Not respected, to be sure. But yes, he goes after these non-respected, these hated groups, these groups that supposedly have boundaries with the Jews, and he still brings the benefit of the gospel to them. Now, his mission was primarily to the Jews, but we also see it with Samaritans and Gentiles. You remember Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well, right? She's surprised that, she, that he's talking to her. Not only because she's a woman, because, but also because she's a Samaritan. She says, how can you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I'm a Samaritan? The Jews despised the Samaritans. They saw the Samaritans as filthy half-breeds and idolaters. And certain Jews even called Jesus a Samaritan at one point. And that was meant as an insult. Do we not rightly say you are a Samaritan and have a demon? They said to Jesus. But Jesus shared the good news of the gospel with the Samaritan woman and her entire town. And they repented and believed. Moreover, Jesus ministered to and praised the faith of a Roman centurion in contrast to the lack of faith in Israel. Romans, too, were not well regarded by the Jews. They were unclean. They were oppressors. They represented the government that was ruling over the Jews. The Jews did not like the Romans. But Jesus was ready to go to this man's house and heal his child. And the only reason he didn't do so is because the man's humble faith. He says, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. I know that you're willing, but I'm not worthy. And it wasn't the same race-penetrating work carried on by the apostles. First, Philip has a tremendously successful ministry among the Samaritans. Then Peter and Paul bring the message gladly to the Gentiles. These were not their people group, Right? They went to people who were not their own, and yet they were their own, because they were just fellow humans. We might sometimes think that life would be so much easier if we were all the same people group. No, it would just be so much easier if everyone were white, everyone were Italian, everyone were American. 
God delights to show his glory by breaking through all the barriers that man erects between himself and his fellow man. Language, culture, social class, gender. He pierces through all those barriers and he directs each and every person and all the uniqueness to behold his glory and to be saved. I mean, think about ourselves. God reached down and rescued you and me. And we're not Jews. We're not Israelites. We don't even live or come from the Middle East. At least not recently. So why would we merit God's attention? But he delighted to show himself generous to all people. It pleased him to show himself kind by reaching out and drawing near those who were far off, right? And who was far off? We were. We were the coastlands of the nations who had never heard about the glory of Christ. It delighted God to reach out and rescue us. So shouldn't we then delight to do the same If God found it so enjoyable to show his goodness to the people groups that were most hated and distrusted by men, will we then forego that joy? The joy of showing every person God? Or will we secretly harbor prejudices against people, supposing some to be more worthy of God's love and others not to be so worthy? Truly no people are worthy, but all are made in God's image, and all are made and all have a desperate need. We are one blood. We're all one people. And even Christ became one of us, right? He became a human to save humans and to show them the glory of God. So let us then share the glorious gospel of Christ with our entire race. That's it for today. We're out of time. If you have more questions or comments, please see me afterwards. You know our memory verse? I mentioned it earlier in the lesson. We won't take time to read through it now. Back 17, 26 to 27 emphasizes the point that we see from Babel. From Adam and from Noah, or one blood, who all come from the same parents. Next week, we move on from Babel, and we step out of Genesis for a moment. We'll talk about the next biblical happening chronologically, the suffering of Job. Anyways, let's close in prayer. Lord God, I thank you. You are wondrous, O Lord. You do display your glory in creation, and we know that from your scriptures, and then we see that, God just the way that you've made and displayed your, your, creati- your creativity and your beauty, Lord, and the different animals that we see, it's wondrous. And yet, God, that same creativity and beauty is evident in the, the variation that you've created in the peoples that you've allowed to manifest itself. God, it's wondrous the way that you've made all the different people in the earth. And yet, God, forgive us. Forgive us, Lord, for where we, we choose not to love certain people because they're not like us, or we think that they're not like us. Oh, God, indeed, we are all the same. And, Lord, we are instructed by you and your beautiful ministry that you love to serve every people group, to show every people group your glory. Oh, God, I pray, Lord, that we would be delighted to do the same. In Jesus' name, amen.